funnily enough, trying to increase that prospect to conversion for pardon me, velocity actually has a massive impact on your margins as well because less touch points in your sales cycle means more prospects your sales team can deal with in a given month. And if your conversion rate stays the same, you actually get more sales through the door. Welcome to Fascinating Entrepreneurs. How do people end up becoming an entrepreneur? How do they scale and grow their businesses? How do they plan for profit? Are they in it for life? Or are they building to exit? These and a myriad of other topics will be discussed to pull back the veil on the wizardry of successful and fascinating entrepreneurs. I've written a book a memoir that starts with my challenging upbringing with all the twists and turns and inflection points, including saving my company due to the pandemic. It will be published this year. So please go to natashamiller.co and sign up on my mailing list so you're the first to know when it's available. Pete Williams is an entrepreneur, advisor, and marketer who Forbes recently called one entrepreneur today that every marketer should be modeling, while Inc. describes him as a savvy marketing strategist. He's the author of the book Cadence, which is a different format for business learning as it's in a story format. I talked to Pete about the seven levers of business, how he made a lot of money selling pieces of a stadium, and what he's focusing on now to scale and grow his business. Now let's get right into it. My mom tells this story of when I was about four years old, I think I was, I actually drew arrows all the way down our hallway in crayon. And the way mum tells the story now, and obviously she might have changed a little bit in her memory, but the way she tells this, she didn't yell at me and didn't punish me. She just sat down and asked me, why did you draw these arrows down the hallway? And apparently my answer as a four-year-old was, so you know how to get to my office. So I've kind of always been entrepreneurial. I started my first business when I was in high school called Impact Plus, and we were a web design agency. This is 20 four years ago, it was like late 90s. So I did websites for local sporting teams and some friends companies and my primary school. I was obviously in high school at that point, but like went back and did some stuff. So I've kind of always had that sort of business bender. You know, I'd, when we were in, we, I'm in Australia, obviously from the accent. And in 96, flew to America for like a three-week holiday. It was amazing. And we're in Vegas and they had one of those green screen rooms, which were really amazing back 25 years ago. And you could get your photo taken and then you plaster like a magazine cover. Like you could put yourself on like Michael Jordan's body or like some baseball player. I chose Success Magazine and put my face on Success Magazine as a 14, 15 year old. So yeah, it's always sort of you just been- a real hit with the women then. Yeah, well, I'm absolutely. Sure. <laughs> were your so parents- that's kind of always been- Yeah, were your parents entrepreneurs? Did you no. model entrepreneurship? Not at all. So it's um, really just you were born with it. Yeah, I think my both grandparents were. So it might have been skipped a generation. My mum was a math teacher. My dad ran well managed logistics companies. And yeah, just so it wasn't in my generation, but I guess the grandparents had it. So maybe it was sort of skipped and passed on that way. So tell us about selling parts of the MCG, <laughs> which I have to say is Australia's version of the Yankee Stadium. You told me this story when we were in Vale? Were we in Vale together? It was Vale, yes. Yes. And I was yeah. dumbfounded. And <laughs> it was the end of the conference. And that's where we met at the very end. Bar. 
And you're one of the people that I keep in closer contact with. Funny how these things work. So tell us about that. This is a crazy story. So when I was at university, I worked at Athletes Foot, so the shoe store chain. And so when I finished uni, I sort of talked my way into letting Athletes Foot fundamentally support me coming to America. And the plan was to sort of spend six months working at different Athletes Foot stores across the country. So I started in South Beach, Fort Lauderdale. So 21-year-old with an Australian accent, half an hour from South Beach, didn't end up leaving, spent the whole six months at the same store and just basically just loved Florida. So ended up falling in love while I was there and all that sort of stuff happens. Then I moved back to Australia. My visa ran out. So I had to come back to Australia, get some stuff sorted. And the plan at the time was actually to move back to New York after I got my visa. The girl I was dating, she was from Jersey. So the plan was to go back to New York. She was going to move back there. And my goal at the time 20 years ago was to go and work for Donald Trump. Now, I am very, very glad that didn't happen for all the obvious reasons, but that was the goal 20 years ago when he was sort of the, he the was business cool guy. 20 years ago. He was cool. Yeah, exactly. That's a nice way of putting it. I read his books in high school and yeah. it is part of why I'm an entrepreneur now. But now that I hear who helped him ghostwrite the books and their experience with him. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. Different stories, but that was the goal at the time. So anyway, I came out to Australia and a new athlete's foot store had just opened up. So I kind of was given the gig to kind of work there and sort of help that sort of get established whilst I was working out how to get my visa to come back to the US. So it was a pretty quiet store. There wasn't a lot of foot traffic, pardon the bad pun. So I'd spend time behind the counter reading books. And this one Tuesday morning, I was reading a book by Mark Victor Hansen and Robert Allen called The One Minute Millionaire. Not the greatest book in the world, but it changed my life. There was literally one paragraph in one chapter that referenced a guy who back in the, I think it was the 80s in Jersey, bought all the timber that was the Brooklyn Bridge from New York to Brooklyn and made little certificates up with the history of the Brooklyn Bridge and an inch by inch square of that timber. And rumor has it and word around the campfire is that he made like 2 million bucks selling these little $20 certificates. So I'm sitting there this Tuesday morning at Athlete's Foot going, that's pretty damn cool. How can I kind of replicate that back here in Australia? And as you said, Australia's version of Yankee Stadium, the Melbourne Cricket Ground. So if you're watching the video, the actual wall behind my desk here is actually a painting and that's the actual MCG there. So this is like a massive 100,000 seat stadium and the Commonwealth Games, so the Commonwealth countries version of the Olympics was happening in Melbourne a few years later. So they just demolished part of that grandstand to actually improve it and make it larger getting ready for the Commonwealth Games. And I remember sitting and going to the Aussie Rules football games and cricket games and concerts and all that sort of stuff at the MCG and sitting on really hard, uncomfortable timber seating. And I'm like, that's the idea. Take that same idea from the guy in New Jersey and basically buy some timber seats so I could get hold of it and do certificates. So I made a few phone calls and got onto the wrecking company that was doing the demolition. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we've got some timber sitting here. We haven't got rid of it yet. It's just in the back of the warehouse. But we've also got this carpet. And it sounds really weird, but the Melbourne Cricket Club, which is sort of like a section of the stadium, is really prestigious. It's like a 50-year wait list to become a member. If you're a Melbourne person, it's almost like a rite of passage that when your child gets born, you put them on the wait list. So when they turn sort of 30 or 40, they become a member and they get to go to any event at the stadium and et cetera, et cetera. But the actual members area had really, really famous, really, really ugly carpet. So it had the actual crest or the logo of the MCC. It was bright red, bright blue, really ugly, but really famous. 
And the wrecking company guy said to me, oh, I've actually got some of the carpet from the dining room as well that's sitting in the back of the warehouse. And I'm like, oh, hang on a second. That's even much more prestigious and well-known. So literally over the phone, basically bought it all over the phone, had to use a friend's credit card because mine was still maxed out from cocktails on South Beach. They are damn expensive and the exchange rate wasn't helpful at the time. So I had to use a friend's credit card to buy it and then made a series of memorabilia pieces up with a photo of the MCG, a plaque sort of telling the history of the MCG, and then obviously basically a sheet of paper square of the carpet and then wrote a press release. 21-year-old sells the MCG for 500 bucks, and Aussie media went bananas with it. It was $500 was, per piece. Yeah, $500 per frame, cost about 150 bucks or so to, to frame up. And then obviously the rest was pure margin. About how much did you have to pay the company that for the five grand. timber? About oh, five boy. grand. Because they didn't value it. They're a demolition company. They were like, this is just leftover rubbish in their opinion. So they were like, yeah, okay. Because typically what they used to do as a business, this is a very, very savvy business model in its own right. So what they do is they get paid to demolish a house or a sporting stadium or anything in between. And then they go and recycle some of the materials. So what they were going to do is turn all the timber seeding into like decking timber. So they kind of just like tongue and groove it and make some changes. So they just sell it as recycled decking timber. And they weren't making it MCG timber. It was just going to be in the same pile as timber from Joe's house down the road they demolished the next day. So they kind of had this interesting business model where they get paid to do a demolition, but then repurpose the rubbish and resell it. But with, when it comes to carpet, they were like, this is just rubbish. And they kind of like, we're not sure what to do with it. So they didn't throw it out. They left it in the back of the warehouse. So literally getting damp and kind of going, almost starting to go moldy, not quite, but when I grabbed it. So it was a, an absolute bargain really in the scheme of things. And um, yeah, then obviously that went on to interviews and TV and a whole bunch of crazy stuff and got a book deal off the back of it. And yeah, that was sort of the first, I guess, seriously really successful. Your entrepreneurship yeah. endeavors. So yeah. you remember how much you made maybe, I guess, gross revenue. Yeah, quite a few hundred thousand. It was awesome. Like, I got a book deal off the back of it and the publishers decided to call the book How to Turn Your Million Dollar Idea into a Reality, which I hated because it sounded like one of those sort of 2 a.m. infomercial titles. But I was, you know, 22, 23 at the time was like, okay, Mr. Publisher, I'll do what you say. Um, so I didn't quite make that money, but that's what the book cover says. But we're still selling carpet today. Like we still sell frames. Wait, um, you still you know, have some of the pieces? Yeah. So the amount of carpet I bought was almost a basketball court size to sort of give you a visual idea. So it was a massive amount of carpet and each frame was only sort of a sheet of paper, legal letter size that, so obviously there's, you know, thousands of pieces really when you break it down. So still selling frames to this day, not as much as we were at the time, but you know, the occasional person wants to buy it for their dad's 80th or for a retirement gift or for a pub or a bar that wants to sort of have memorabilia around the wall. So they still sort of tick over here and there, which is pretty crazy 20 years on. That's amazing. So you mentioned you wrote a book. I have read one of your books, not that first one, but don't don't buy the first one. It's it's crap. (laughs) Funnily (laughs) enough, I actually got a ghostwriter. Sorry. So I actually talking about the Donald Trump mentioned before about how they used a ghostwriter. I actually had a ghostwriter for my first book and we had breakfast every week, twice a week for about four months. And I kind of sit over breakfast and kind of just spout wisdom that a 22-year-old can have for business. It was a bit of a joke, really, in hindsight. Um, Leverage a lot of other books and references and stuff like that. But yeah, ghostwriting didn't work in my favor in that regard. It was, you know, the book was okay, but, you know, I wouldn't recommend people buy it. (laughs) Okay, well, we should move on to Cadence. 
yeah. which is the book that I read after meeting you at that was written in a storytelling format rather than a how-to or a manual. And so I want to know more about why you chose that format and how you published it as an author. Yeah, sure. So yeah, so Cadence is based around the frameworks that we've used in our companies for the last sort of decade or so. So I now have a telecommunications group, consult with some other businesses, have some other investments. And fundamentally, we use that framework a lot for our focus on growth. So that's kind of the purpose of the book is to sort of share the framework we use to focus our attention as managers and marketers. But in terms of the book, so yeah, it's a storytelling format and it's based on a true story actually. So I thought a lot of business books are very dry. You can get the gist of it in three chapters, but then sort of it's just expanded to 20 with just random fluff because it kind of has to. Whereas I also thought that where the framework has been super helpful over the last five or six years I've shared it and talked about it is a lot for business owners who are often really good at their craft, but haven't had a lot of experience running a business. You may have read the E-myth, so you kind of realize you got to work on your business rather than in it, but then you're kind of left with this, well, what stuff do I work on? There was that gap left. So the book kind of fills that space. So what we decided was a storytelling format was going to be probably more accessible to that kind of audience. Obviously, every business owner should read it and the feedback's been fantastic, but to make it accessible to that part of the audience went down the path of a story just to sort of make it more engaging. It's still a quick read. So there's no sort of fluff with the extra stuff in there. I want to so say, kind of the reason. interestingly enough, I read that maybe two years ago is when we met. Yep. And I could tell you, I can't tell you the characters' names, but about the bicycle shop, I remember the story, which is really unusual, especially for a business book. So yeah. you had something going there. So were you using a traditional publisher? No, so you used a, so a hybrid, ended up going down the hybrid path. So the first book I did, the Million Dollar Idea book was with Wiley, which is one of the larger publishers globally. And I had a very interesting experience with those guys. They paid me a good advance, but they were very unentrepreneurial in the way they wanted to do marketing. Like I wanted to do stuff like let's give away some frames and you know pick some key bookstores around the country and say anybody who buys a copy of the book can go in the draw to win a frame. And they're like, oh, the bookstores wouldn't do that. That's just no, no, no. I'm like, but like imagine that frame in the middle of a bookstore. It's going to get people's attention. They can buy a book and like. I mean, radio so I, stations do that. Why couldn't they parlay that? It Why was didn't? Just a, it was frustrating. It's like this young marketer going, here's all these creative ideas and they just weren't willing to do it. So I went, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And I didn't want to go down the self-publishing, the fully self-published angle purely for two reasons. One is just the distribution is easier with a hybrid. And I'll explain what hybrids are a bit more if people don't know. But also secondly, I think there is still a lot of credibility in having a third-party brand on the book. So not self-published. Obviously, yes, you get less revenue and things like that, but the benefit of having someone like Morgan James, which is the hybrid publisher I decided to use, is it has that third-party endorsement on the cover as a publisher, which I think is really good for speaking engagements and consulting and stuff like that. It's just that extra bit of credibility. It's on the spine and in the so, inside yeah. front cover. Yeah. <laughs> just Thank you. For just, yeah. Good clarity. So that's the kind of angle in that regard. So I still had complete control editorially about the title and the content, obviously given the experience I had previously with Wiley and the title, I wanted to have control over that. So I had still complete creative control about the content and all of that. They did all the distribution. They had the network to get into bookstores. It was across the US in airports and all that sort of stuff. So they had all that 
down pat. They did all the typesetting. I didn't have to handle any of that kind of So getting into airport bookstores is a challenge. And what I'm learning as an author that it's a pay-to-play situation Mm. now. I don't know if it was then two years ago. It wasn't that long ago, but. You know, I don't know the nuances. I know I didn't have to pay for it. So maybe the benefits of the hybrids, they sort of have some budgets here and there. They're not as big and have as much weight behind them as the Penguins or the larger publishers. But there is that benefit of sort of having that in between. And that worked really well for me. So the next thing I want for you to talk to us about are the seven levers of business. You probably Mm -hmm. say lever. And can you go into depth on one of them? Yeah, sure. So this is the framework that we talk about in Cadence. So to kind of give you just a bit of context. So obviously I mentioned we have the telco group now. And when we started that business, this was sort of, you know, 16 years ago, probably more now, we did a really good job of lead gen. You know, we kind of owned Google in Australia for telco stuff. And we were doing really, really good with lead gen. And we were basically a sales and marketing company. And we had no technical experience. And we were basically outsourcing all the installations of the phone systems that we were selling to effectively competitors. You know, we'd make a sale, we'd find a solution, we'd sell it to a client, and then it would obviously need to get programmed and installed. So we'd find a subcontractor and pass the client onto them effectively to do the installation. And that and was still that really good. Under your name still? Yeah, absolutely. It was under our name. However, to a certain extent, what was happening was if a client then wanted to make some reprogramming changes or buy an extra handset, who are they going to call? Ideally, they call us, but realistically, whether it was deliberately or not, that somehow get back to the subcontractor because they were the people who turned up with the white gloves on and gave you actual service, really. We were just making sales. So we proved the business model to generate leads and make sales, but we kind of hit a glass ceiling. We weren't kind of growing. We started to figure out, well, like, well, what was causing this? So we sat down and started over time looking at, well, what was working well, what was not working well. And we kind of realized that we had very, very little repeat business from our client base. And that was purely because we were giving them to our competition effectively. So from there, we sort of started going, okay, well, let's look at like, what are all the things that go into generating revenue and profit in a business? Whether it was ours, whether it was a bakery, whether it was whatever they were. And we kind of sat down over time and kind of figured out there was only really seven things that was driving revenue in any business. And that kind of became this seven levers focus. And there's two levels to it. So fundamentally to kind of break them down, it's suspects. How many people actually kind of aware of your business, come to your website, walk into your shoe store, whatever it might be. So that's how many suspects do your business get and what are you doing to actually generate more suspects? Then you've got prospects. These are the people who kind of actually put their hand up and make some sort of micro commitment as they get closer to the sale. So if we use the athlete's foot store as an example, they are people who sit down and try to pair of shoes. In our phone system business, it's people who actually picked up the phone, had a conversation with our sales team and got to the point where we could send them a proposal. Maybe an online business, it might be something that downloads a free report, for example. There's some sort of micro-commitment people make from just being aware of you and coming to your business, your website, or wherever it might be, and actually buying. But then obviously, the third lever is conversions. Well, how do you actually get people to actually open up their wallets, give you a credit card, and purchase? So then, okay, that sort of drives the buyer. Then what drives the revenue? Well, you've got average item price and items per sale. Now, what's the average price of the items you're selling your clients and how many items are they buying? Are they buying the fries? It's an overused analogy, but would you like fries with that? So there are two elements you have control over as a business owner. Then you've got transactions per client. How often do they come back? And that was our biggest hole in the telco originally. We weren't doing anything at all. 
And then you've got obviously your costs and your cost management and your margins. So effectively, they're the seven areas that drive revenue and profit in any business. Nothing overly revolutionary, but the question you ask yourself is, am I focusing on each of these things individually and consciously trying to increase and control the outcomes in all of those? What are we doing this month to increase our prospect rate? What are we doing this month to increase our items per sale? And the really fascinating thing that we found and blew my mind and mum being the math teacher that you mentioned earlier, fell in love with, is that if you just increase each of those seven areas by 10%, just get 10% more web traffic, just go from a conversion rate of 11% to 12.1%, increase your items per sale from 1.1 to 1.21, just every 10th person buys something else. So just seven small 10% wins the aggregated result of that is doubling your profit. It's insane when you look at it like that because I think most people when they go, I've got to grow my business. I've got to be Babe Ruth, hit it out of the park and double the traffic to my website or I've got to double our conversion rate. And this stuff is damn hard to do. Like doubling anything is a lot of work. Whereas if you go, okay, hang on, let's look at all these seven areas in isolation and just try and get a 10% win in each, the cumulative effect is doubling your profit. And that's kind of the framework that we talk about in the book and I consult on and we're using our businesses. And that's kind of the framework and the focus, which has been sort of a big driver for us. And what did you do with your business to retain those clients and make them repeat clients? Yeah, well, so, so the big thing for us was we actually ended up hiring technicians. That was one of the big things we, we first did is we took that back in-house as a very early kind of like, well, hang on, the volume in our business makes sense now. We can justify the capital expense. Early on, we were just trying to keep overheads low and just prove the business model or the lead gen model. But then it got to the point where it just made sense for us to hire tech. So we have our own technicians now. But then also we've delved deep into that with just a bunch of automated marketing. So we have SMSs and emails and prompts in our system for the sales team to do follow-up calls. So we have a lot more automation now in that process to actually own and control the relationship with a past client. And so we're constantly refining that, like what emails are working well, what's getting good open rates, what's actually getting engagement. Do we make a phone call here? Do we send a thank you gift there? So we're always trying to refine that and basically continually looking at each of those areas separately and going, okay, in isolation, how can we improve our transactions per customer more? How do we expand our product range? How do we offer something new? How do we whatever we might be doing to drive more of those repeat engagements and stuff from our clients in all the different business units. When you put that into play, when you switch from the outside source doing the fulfillment to bringing it in-house, I'm going to assume that it actually resulted in more than a 10%. Change, yeah, absolutely. Right? So, yeah. What was the number for you or what is it today compared to when it was then? Oh, yeah. To tell you what the, what the jump was, it'd be really hard because it was over a decade ago when we started hiring our own staff to kind of solve that problem. So in terms of the impact it had to our business, I probably, I couldn't even guesstimate the return, but it was a massive difference for us because for us, we had no repeat business. So going from no repeat business from a client to anything was more than a 10% increase because it was basically, it's going to be at least 100 Do you measure repeat business? Is it a separate element? We do now. We measure all these areas. We report to the board. As a board, we actually pull a canvas up with all these seven areas and that's what we report on every month. And we're going, what's our transactions per client this month? From our our e-commerce business, we have a business called Simply Headsets, which is the largest headset reseller in Australia. So we're looking at how many people come to our website every month. That's our suspects. How many people click add to cart? That's our definition of 
prospects? What's our conversion rate this month? What's our average item price? So we're reporting on all these things every month and going, are we going up or down? And what are we doing to actually increase one of these every month? We're going, okay, well, this is our transactions per client. How do we increase that? What are we doing to get more? Do you Uh, measure and look at when a prospect engages with you, what the timing is from that engagement to the sale? 100%. So we do that across all the different business units in terms of that's one of the things. It's like, well, can you increase the velocity of that prospect to conversion rate? And sometimes this is where we can go down a massive rabbit hole in that. So (laughs) increasing that sort of velocity, it might not change conversion rate so much. It might just keep the conversion rate the same, but it does free up the amount of time for your sales team to then liaise with more prospects in a particular month. So funnily enough, trying to increase that prospect to conversion for pardon me, velocity actually has a massive impact on your margins as well because less touch points in your sales cycle means more prospects your sales team can deal with in a given month. And if your conversion rate stays the same, you actually get more sales through the door. So this is some of the second order consequence stuff that I find really fascinating with all of this in terms of how you do something like that. It actually affects a different lever and being very conscious about that, you can really kind of play very cool chess games inside your business. You mentioned deciding whether to send a client an email or a call or a gift and that kind of resonated with me. What kind of gifting do you do with your clients? Um, so things like this. So we have people who are watching the video. We have a little, what looks like a pill jar and it's full of just jelly beans. But on the cover, it says telco headaches, pain relief for phone system confusion, expensive phone bills and NBN nightmares, which is our data. Now, side effects, smooth installs, lifetime support, call savings and expert advice. So Very we kind of just clever. do fun stuff like that. So it's things like that that aren't just the usual kind of, you know, here's a t-shirt with a name on it. We're also a big believer in John Rulin's giftology approach. I don't know if you know. Yeah. So that's why I asked you, I wasn't planning on asking you, but (laughs) I do know John's approach and I find it very fascinating. And that's what I wanted to see what you came up with and what you came up with actually is very different than what John is teaching Mm, because he's not sending about co-knives, but really surprising and delighting people with something big for not just them, but their families. But I really like what you just showed us. Yeah. And like literally something simple, like I write a handwritten note to every new client we get, not in the headset business because it's too much volume, it would kill me, but in the phone system side of the business, which is larger sales, is like just a personalized note. Dear John, I heard that Richard was able to help you out with your new phone system solution. We know the Avaya IP500 is going to be perfect for your consulting practice. Thanks for being part of our community, Pete. Like just like that, just it just wows people. It takes me 10 seconds. So I spend 20 minutes a day. Or, you know, that, that's probably the you sent work, me but... something really interesting in the mail and to get ah. all the way from Australia, because <laughs> it's a challenge, it's logistics challenge, but it's also expensive, right? Absolutely. And what you sent me was really sweet and I really thought my business line of work was very much impacted by COVID. Yeah. So what I got from you, the cute little matchsticks in the glass bottle really meant something to me. So the note, you probably need to explain the note to give it context. Otherwise, <laughs> why is Pete sending matches in the mail? <laughs> <Sounds> like- <laughs> so what I did at the start of this year is I sent probably close to 50 of them, I think, around the world. And they were literally just like a little tiny little glass jar with a bunch of matchsticks in it. And then a note basically saying, for many, 2020 can burn in hell. I hope in 2021, you're on fire. 
I think that was almost the verbatim. Like that, I said. Yes. Yeah. And I sent about, you know, 50 just friends around the world that sort of was like, well, particularly people I know who kind of got hit by COVID because it sucked balls. And it's just a difference. Like I could send an email, but like, well, that doesn't really make the impact that an actual little gift. And I know people have got it, you know, sitting next to their desks now and they just look at it every day and just remind them to go, no, no, I can be on fire. So. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for that. And thank you for the ideas, really. Yeah. So what right now is one of the biggest challenges you're working through in your business? I try to ask this question of everyone because I want to show entrepreneurs of every, whether you're just starting out, whether you have a hundred million dollar business, everything in between, there's always going to be a challenge. So right now sitting there, what is something that- Yeah. So we've had two massive challenges in the last year, all because of COVID and both ends of the extreme. So for us in the headset side of our business- Headsets became like the new toilet paper during COVID in that everyone started working from home. So everyone needed new headsets and stuff like that. So that business went insane for, and still, you know, and it has scaled up in terms of just the business was massive anyway, but then just March, April, May last year was just frantic in terms of just the volumes of sales we did and having to just deal with logistics of getting planes in from Mexico, working with our distributors to kind of get stock in. It was just an absolute nightmare. Of and are you selling problem. to Australia specifically? Mostly? Australia only. Yeah. So we're purely Australia based. Yeah. Which is still a decent sized market. So that was a great problem to have, but just trying to pivot and deal with the volume of orders and back orders and stock management. And just all of that was just insane. And the web team had to deal with just making changes to the website almost daily, just to keep up with just communicating with the clients and dealing with a whole bunch of stuff that we never had to really worry about in the past about certain things we were doing. So that was sort of one element of it. The other side of it, we've got an interesting challenge in the phone system side of the business has been shaken really heavily for two reasons. So in Australia, we're rolling out what's called the National Broadband Network. So basically putting fiber across the whole country for data. So that's been going for about five or six years and it has really made a massive impact to our business in a good way in that everyone has to sort of do something with their phone systems because literally the country is pulling out the old school copper telephone lines and replacing everything with data. So basically everyone's phones from home phones to business has to be over IP now. So it's basically VoIP across the whole country. So that's been a really good problem for us generally in terms of creating a whole bunch of demand. But also when COVID hit, that fast tracked the change dramatically too because as everyone's sort of having to start working from home, a traditional office phone system, which would be in your office with your handsets, became redundant for so many businesses. That that to go, not just VoIP, but purely cloud or hosted phone systems. So that changed the market dramatically. And we sell into that space, but obviously that changed a lot. But also too, the interesting thing with hosted phone systems is traditionally, if you want to buy a phone system, you had to deal with a phone system company because it was a very bespoke custom kind of solution. So you might call your IT company and go, hey, we need a new phone system. Can you help us? They'd be like, no. We don't do phones. We do IT. But as the world changes and host becomes a very different type of solution, IT companies have gone into our space. So we've had a massive shift in our competition. So for a lot of clients, they've got a trusted relationship with their IT company that they now go to, can you help out with our phones? Oh, yeah, we actually can. So we've got our challenge right now is a very, very significant shift in the marketplace and some massive headwinds and shifts in our space in that traditionally we could just live, you know, generating our own phone system leads. But because IT companies who are the trusted advisors are now competing with us, it's a very different shift in the buying cycle. So that's a very 
different challenge we're facing in that business purely based on COVID fast-tracked it, NBN and VoIP stuff has just been fast-tracked as well around the country. So we're facing a massive market shift. It's not that like oh, yeah, our marketing isn't working anymore or anything like that. It's just like the whole market and the way people are buying has shifted almost 180 in the matter of sort of 18 months. So, so is that's an employee and hiring situation in addition to your messaging and your marketing. Well, it's interesting thing. It's so the way buyers are going through their customer journey in terms of looking for the way they search and look for solutions is very different. We want to pivot into being an IT company as well. That's a very different change for us. You want so to acquire, sort of, would you acquire an IT company? Yeah. So we're going through all this sort of- from scratch. Absolutely. I wouldn't want to do that. But this is all the strategic things we're having at discussions at the moment is like, well, how do we deal with a complete market shift? I think most entrepreneurs, it might be, oh yeah, there's a new competitor moved into our area or we've got some staffing challenges or we want to expand our current marketing reach because the way you grow your business is, oh yeah, we're no longer going to be in California. We're now going to go into Texas and we're going to expand. So they're those sort of challenges. It's not often that an entrepreneur faces a complete market shift because the actual market completely changes. It's a very unique problem to actually try and solve. So it's a fun challenge at the moment, but it's a challenge nonetheless. So lastly, I want to talk about one of the strategies, the one of the bigger strategies that you're focusing on now for growth and scaling this year. I'm going to assume you want to scale and grow because I know Always. you, but is there one thing that you're doubling or tripling down on to achieve yeah. growth? So in the headset business, we're expanding that side of the company into a lot of the sort of the VC stuff. So to increase our reach for suspects and to increase our transactions per client and also to affect our items per sale. Not so much that because people generally come with a particular problem to solve and it's sort of hard to expand their purchase behavior. But fundamentally, going into a lot more sort of video conferencing products and webcams and that kind of stuff as a product line extension of the headset business, that's where we're doubling down and looking at doing that quite a lot because that's going to allow us to increase the reach of more suspects for that business unit. It's going to allow us to be able to have go back conversations with our headset clients around what are you doing around other communication? Are you got your headset? What about webcam and how are you video conferencing and, and all that sort of stuff? Because it's a very nice product line extension that allows us to increase our transactions per client. Because you buy a headset, you're not probably going to buy a second headset. It's not like a pair of shoes. Whereas a business buys one for the reception team, but then everyone needs extra headsets. So there is additional headset purchases particularly for a client, but there's only so many heads in a company that want to wear a headset. So it's like, well, how do we expand Are you a reseller? Yeah. So we're one of the larger resellers of Jabra, Epos, Yaylink, Poly. So that kind of brands that most people probably heard on in that sort of business space. So I'm looking up at my computer. I have a Logitech Brio and then I have a LoomCube light fixture. That's a San Diego-based company. I have a Rode mic. I have a frame, very heavy boom mic stand here, and then all the cables. I have a USB port that has to take in all the cables. So are you expanding into all of those things? I just- Probably not going that far. I don't think we're going to go into the podcast space. We're very much in that B2B space. So we have, you know, not the podcasting is not a real business. It absolutely is. But the clients we work with traditionally in that space is sort of an organization who's now doing- 
lots of Zoom calls or team meetings, but want their staff to look good. So, okay, we'll do a webcam. Polly's got some really interesting stuff coming out with webcams and really good mics all in one and that sort of stuff. I don't think we'll get into the boom mic space, but webcams, some speakerphone stuff, that kind of stuff. I think if we end up going to the whole road space with all that sort of stuff, that's a massive rabbit hole in a whole different world. There's probably too much of a jump to start. We want to expand in a controlled way. So we'll do stuff like, yeah, small webcams and really high quality stuff there, some basic light stuff, and then a lot of sort of conference room stuff. So it's interesting. Conference rooms are coming back in a big way here in Australia. Obviously, we're very, very lucky in our COVID situation. I think I don't think the country's had a single community transmission for like close to a month now. There's a few in hotels quarantine but they're dealing with that so we've kind of been very lucky being an island we had some pretty crazy lockdowns last year too so we had a three-month patch in melbourne where we couldn't go more than three miles from our house and we're not allowed outside for more than an hour a day i'm sure in america you could not get away with that you know australians we're originally a colony of criminals from the uk so i guess we're good at adhering to laws <laughs> i don't know and you but, had tom hanks as your celebrity yeah, yeah. first yes so you, you guys know, on the now. map Yeah, exactly. So we're really lucky now in that like COVID kind of isn't really here. We've got a lot of restrictions in place to kind of manage that, but it's basically life back to normal. So particularly in Australia, people are coming back to the office a lot more, doing that hybrid workspace and conference rooms are kind of coming back up with video conferencing and stuff like that. So there's a lot of larger kind of conference room stuff we're doing as well. So long answer to a very short question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations on your success. Pete just walked us through seven very important levers to focus on that if you improve just by 10% each, will double your business. I'll take that any day. To learn more about Pete, please go to the show notes where you're listening to this podcast. For more information about me, go to my website, natashamiller.co. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you loved the show. If you did, please subscribe. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please leave a review where you're listening to this podcast now. I'm Natasha Miller, and you've been listening to Fascinating Entrepreneurs.